Hi, I'm Mandy Moody, the content manager for the ACFE, and I'm going to share with you Banker on the Run. A bank client comes to regret their close relationship with a bank officer, shared with the ACFE by an anonymous CFE. An old adage says, it's not what you know, but who you know. While that is important for networking, it's also valuable to fraudsters who try and evade justice thanks to the connections they have. Unfortunately, this happened to a number of victims at a bank that employed a relative of a senior director who decided to line her pockets. Denise was a long tenured bank employee. She worked her way up through the ranks from teller to relationship officer over the course of 30 years, landing at one branch for 12 years. Denise had a number of clients who trusted her implicitly to manage their money. One family in particular, the Chins, were especially close to Denise because she'd handled their accounts for seven years. They trusted her so much and considered her a part of their family, explained the CFE who later investigated the case. They knew each other's personal details. Exchanging cards and giving gifts during holidays and birthdays were normal for them. One day, the Chins were approached by another relationship officer at the bank who claimed they could offer a better return rate than Denise was providing them. The bells started ringing. The rate was too high to be possible, so the officer took the details of the Chins account to internal audit and compliance at the bank. They discovered the Chins weren't the only clients Denise was defrauding. The bank had anti-fraud controls in place, but they were not robust enough to stop Denise. She forged clients' signatures to make withdrawals from an account, or occasionally another client's accounts to cover her tracks. She would not post a transaction and make false entries on the client's passbooks. She provided the clients with bogus statements or typewritten entries in the passbooks instead of the official account statement. All told, Denise stole approximately $3.7 million. But what many people didn't know was that Denise was a relative of a director of the bank. The fraud incident was kept confidential and the bank quietly reimbursed all of Denise's victims. Although they got their money back, her victims, including the Chins, were devastated by the betrayal. Meanwhile, Denise was nowhere to be found. To the best of the investigating CFE's knowledge, she fled the country and has not been prosecuted for her crimes. Hi. I'm Patrick Rubio, the Communications Coordinator for the ACFE, and I'm reading Taking Advantage. A part-time caregiver defrauds an elderly owner of a working farm, shared with the ACFE by an anonymous CFE. Unfortunately, fraudsters often target the most vulnerable people when committing their crimes, and the elderly population is no exception. Banks reported 24,454 suspected cases of fraud targeting elderly victims to the U.S. Department of Treasury in 2018. A number of those fraud schemes are perpetrated by strangers who contact victims with a fictional tale of woe or impersonate family members and ask the victims for money. However, some of those fraud schemes are much more personal. Jim was an elderly gentleman who owned a working farm. He suffered two strokes in 2011, leading him and his wife to hire Cindy to do basic housekeeping duties. In 2012, the wife suffered a major stroke and Cindy's duties were changed from housekeeping to more of a caregiver role. In early 2013, Cindy left her agency and was hired by Jim's family as an independent contractor at a higher pay rate than the agency provided. Jim's wife passed away in 2014. As Cindy cared for Jim, 
their relationship became more familiar than purely professional. Cindy told Jim about her life and that her husband was seeing another woman. She told Jim her adulterous husband wasn't providing for her financially anymore and she was falling on hard times. She began to spend more time at Jim's house than she was contracted for and used Jim's credit cards for personal expenses like groceries and utilities. Jim's memory began to fail and Cindy began helping him with his finances. Around a year and a half after Jim's wife passed away, his adult children began to worry about their father's declining health and started to prepare for the future. Two of his children had mental disabilities and were dependent on Jim's estate, while another child ran the farm. A separate daughter applied for and was granted conservatorship of Jim's estate and was named his guardian. His children discovered that Jim had not filed taxes for the previous five years. This concerned them as Jim was a farmer with various land and financial investments. They also began digging around the financial records Cindy had helped with and found she'd been issued random bonuses and duplicate paychecks. The CFE who was brought in to work on the case explained, Items in Jim's ledgers were mislabeled, the amounts were incorrect or minimized, and paper records were missing. Cindy then resorted to saying the extra paychecks and other expenses charged on Jim's credit cards were gifts. No one suspected a thing, as they all thought the caregiver was attentive and well-liked by the victim. The preceding investigation proved difficult because of incomplete financial records, and the adult children began arguing over various aspects of the estate. Eventually, Cindy pleaded guilty to defrauding Jim for $130,000, although some estimates of the amount she stole were closer to $200,000. Cindy is in the process of paying restitution to the estate, and still lives with her husband, and an over $250,000 home he had bought during the adjudication of the case. Hi, I'm Sarah Hoffman, the Public Information Officer for the ACFE, and I'm reading The Vacation Day, A Banker's Fraud Scheme is Caught When He Takes the Day Off, by Tomasita Pazos, CFE. A common red flag of fraud is the unwillingness to use paid time off. This is sometimes incorrectly attributed to a diligent work ethic when it is actually a way for rogue employees to ensure no one will uncover their fraud schemes. One fraud victim learned this the hard way. Steve was a loyal customer of his local bank, City Credit Union, for 30 years. He held basic accounts and mutual fund-driven investment vehicles. However, his ties to the bank went deeper than just business. Steve's daughter was previously married to a man whose brother, Chuck, was the branch manager at City Credit Union. Although the marriage didn't work, Steve remained friends with Chuck. Steve would visit the bank on the same day and time every month to check on his mutual fund account. He never withdrew from it, but reviewed the interest earned. Chuck was all too happy to greet him every time with a printed statement of his account. This monthly meeting between the two men went on for eight years until the day Chuck was on vacation and a different bank employee gave Steve his account statement. The statement showed that the account was empty. Chuck had slowly drained Steve's account and had been supplying him with falsified statements each month. City Credit Union had controls in place to prevent a fraud like this. They required the cashier to authenticate any payments or withdrawals with clients, ideally with the clients being present. They also required cashiers to get authorization from managers or supervisors for withdrawing large amounts. Unfortunately for City Credit Union and Steve, Chuck was able to circumvent both of these controls. Chuck fostered a climate of trust among the employees in his branch. 
He often stressed what a close personal relationship he had with Steve, and he abused his position as manager by using his employees to make the withdrawals that he would then approve. The employees assumed he was carrying out Steve's wishes, as opposed to lining his own pockets. Once Steve discovered his account was empty, Chuck was fired from the bank and criminal charges were filed. City Credit Union reimbursed Steve for the full amount lost, approximately $130,000. Steve recovered his money, but felt betrayed by someone he considered family. City Credit Union shared the fraud scheme with employees to raise awareness among them so they should not omit controls even if a supervisor asked them to do so. This was an opportunity to train and refresh employees on the importance of using the bank's hotline to report any misconduct or red flags. Hi, I'm Melissa Broccolo, the Certification Manager for the ACFE, and I'm reading The Veteran Bookkeeper. An accountant with 20 years tenure bleeds a nonprofit dry by Rob Schaff, CFE, as told to Sarah Hoffman, CFE. Many fraud examiners are familiar with stories of fraud taking place because too much trust was placed in an employee. This problem is most prevalent in small organizations because a single person may be relied on to complete multiple job functions. In the ACFE's 2018 Report to the Nations, organizations with less than 100 employees experienced a median loss of $200,000 per fraud instance, nearly double the amount that larger organizations experienced. Small organizations also may not have the resources to put anti-fraud controls in place. The report found that 42% of fraud instances in small organizations were caused in part by a lack of internal controls, compared to 25% in larger organizations. Too much trust in one veteran bookkeeper led one small nonprofit to lose approximately $3 million. Susan was a trusted employee at a small 501c3 that operated under a larger national organization. She was the longest tenured employee, having worked there for 20 years, and served as a historical resource for other employees. The executive director, Marilyn, relied on Susan for a variety of tasks. Susan rarely took vacations. When she started a new side business, she told coworkers that it was her mother's business. Marilyn noticed that Susan often had new handbags and drove a nicer car than anyone else, but didn't think about it too much. One day, Marilyn was talking to her friend, who happened to be the banking officer for the organization, about future projects she wanted to undertake. The banking officer seemed surprised and informed Marilyn of the low cash balance the organization had. The banking officer also commented how surprised she was at how many checks were written to Susan. Marilyn quickly called in their law firm, which in turn hired a CFE for a consultation. The CFE explained, After much discussion, I advised them to hire a CPA firm to attempt to quantify the individual checks amounts, and length of time. I felt after having a firm quantify these amounts independent of me would provide a clearer audit trail at trial. After they completed their project, we began our engagement. It was at this time that we discovered her patterns and sheer breadth of the embezzlement. They soon discovered Susan had a pattern of behavior that she had exhibited for more than a decade. She would write herself checks and would either use Marilyn's signature stamp or forge her signature. Within the accounting system, she would code these checks to an obscure general ledger account. 
Since the financials and general ledger were never reviewed by anyone other than Susan, there was little risk for her. Later, she would alter the checks and recode the expenditures out of the obscure account to a general ledger account befitting the type of expenditure. Prior to their bank introducing them imaging, Susan would simply remove the canceled checks from the bank statement package. She wrote to herself and destroy them. When the bank began using check imaging, she covered her tracks in a rudimentary way. During an interview, the hired CFE asked Susan what software program she used to alter the check images in the bank statements. She looked at me quizzically and said, I don't use software. I cut and pasted. Susan said that she would make copies of previous bank statement images, cut out a vendor name using an X-Acto knife, and paste the vendor name over her name in the image. Then she would recopy the current sheet of images. I asked her if anybody ever inquired about the strange look of the images, and she said she had made copies of the images' sheets and never gave anybody an original bank statement, explained the CFE. I asked her specifically if the auditors ever requested original bank statements, and she said that if they did, she only gave copies and nobody ever objected. The organization's bank only kept statements and image records for seven years prior, but the investigators requested and randomly examined older records from off-site storage. That sample showed the same pattern of canceled checks, leading investigators to determine Susan's scheme had lasted more than 10 years. In the end, Susan stole an estimated $2.8 million and was sentenced to 57 months in federal prison. However, the damage was deeper than a dollar amount. At a human level, while Marilyn was absolutely brilliant, resolute, and honest about what was going on, this took a terrible toll on her, explained the CFE. She is a strong woman, but I could tell when we spoke that it was a nightmare for her. The board members I worked with displayed the typical range of emotions, disbelief, anger, anguished worry, but were unyielding in their resolve to see the case through. Hi, I'm Ross Pry, the membership director for the ACFE, and I'm reading Practice Makes Imperfect. A charismatic fraudster drains a physician's practice for more than 20 years. By Judy D. Wright, Ph.D., CFE, and Jack L. Oliver, CFE, CPA. Fraudsters are often able to deceive their victims for long periods of time through gain, trust, and personability. These cases cut their victims the deepest, as not only have they lost money, they've been personally betrayed as well. That was the case for a 12-person medical practice that housed a charismatic fraudster for two decades. Total Primary Care Professionals was first established by 12 practitioners with the friendly Brian as a lead administrative physician. Brian was a well-liked figure in the community. He was a very charismatic person and appeared to be the perfect professional, spouse, parent, and a friend, the type of person you want to point to as an example to others. Although the practice was buzzing with activity for nearly 20 years, the physicians in the practice noticed they were losing money despite producing substantial revenues. Millions of dollars seemed to simply disappear. Some of the physicians became suspicious that something was going on. Many of the physicians were operating at a loss month 
after month. Some of the physicians believed many of the expenses that were charged to them seemed exorbitant. Several of the physicians left the practice over the years as a result. Eventually, it was discovered that more than $25 million was skimmed and embezzled over a 20-year period. Initially, the partners were part of the decision-making process as far as expansion and general matters. But as the years passed, and as dissatisfaction set in because of low revenues, decision-making was transferred to committees, the financial ones of which were run by Brian and his closest allies. Whenever one physician would start calling for accountability, Brian and his friends would begin to ostracize them from the rest of the group, along with punishing the dissatisfied physicians with a reduced schedule and inflated costs. These financial penalties were apparently levied to reduce their financial ability to hire outside help to pursue an audit or take other action. Most physicians who were hired to replace those who left were not concerned about finances because their spouses were successful, they had family money, or they were non-confrontational. Essentially, these physicians were the perfect target for fraud schemes. It became evident that Brian was at least complicit when I met with him to discuss why there were no efforts to pursue recall or collections, which would increase revenue for all the physicians. His response was that he was satisfied with things the way they were. This was shocking because if the financial statements were true, any physician would have jumped at the chance to find such easy ways to increase revenues. His body language screamed that he did not want anyone rocking the boat. This was a major turning point in the investigation. When the seventh physician, Ewan, left the practice, he expected to be paid approximately $50,000 in accounts receivable, but was only paid a little more than $2,000. He hired my firm to investigate, and we discovered that Ewan's accounts receivable at the time of his resignation was closer to $100,000. When Brian first set up the practice, he implemented a confusing, overlapping financial record structure using three different software systems, all of which were antiquated. With poor record keeping and numerous individuals separately handling the incoming revenue, no one knew how much money was actually coming into the practice. Untrained, unqualified, and overpaid office managers were replaced often, and financial information was withheld from other physicians. The partnership was set up as a corporation rather than the normal practice of a limited partnership, which helps to avoid double taxation on revenues. It was discovered that this was done to reduce liability if the fraud was discovered, since corporations cannot be charged criminally. Reported losses eliminated corporate taxes owed, and Brian could plead ignorance. Brian used all of these tactics to cover that he was skimming millions of dollars in revenue, which he diverted into 401k funds and used to pay state and federal taxes on illicit funds. He also used company credit cards for unauthorized purchases. Brian underreported revenues and grossly inflated expenses to conceal his fraud. In addition, each year the corporation reported losses when the skimmed profits would have resulted in double taxation. By fraudulently reporting corporate losses as a result of the skimming, Brian also defrauded the federal and state governments of tax revenue on the corporate income he had stolen over the 20-year period. The damage Brian's fraud caused went much deeper than just lost revenue for the physicians in the practice. These physicians were all exploited for two decades as the money they earned was systematically skimmed and embezzled. At the same time, they stressed about being able to take care of their families 
and were required to keep paying more and more money to the practice under the guise of expenses owed. Ewan stated that whenever any of the physicians asked why they were not making money, they were told to work harder. Of course, the harder they worked, the more money was stolen from them. Many of the physicians even took on part-time jobs to help support their families. By the time the fraud was discovered, Brian had taken total control of the administrative and financial leadership of the practice. He alone made all the decisions regarding administrative and financial matters. Ewan took the results of the investigation straight to Brian and asked to be reimbursed for the losses Brian had caused. In turn, Brian used the practice's legal counsel to file a civil case against Ewan, which was eventually dismissed. Civil and criminal charges are currently in process, especially criminal tax fraud regarding the fraudulent losses reported for the corporation and embezzlement. The cases are still pending. You can read more about this case and other cases, along with lessons from the CFE, at acfe.com slash rttn. Thank you for listening.